Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Uh, in today's episode, I speak with Toby Hall, who is the group CEO of St. Vincent's Health Australia. And I think this interview is uh, really worth listening to because during the conversation, Toby talks a lot about mentoring, which, as you know, is a passion of mine. And he also talks about the importance of the financials. And probably the most important thing is he talks about the impact purpose has in being a leader and really defining yourself as a leader and where you want to go. So happy listening. And once again, would love for you to leave a review on iTunes and Stitcher. So love to hear what you think. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian speaks with leaders from around Australia to bring you their leadership story and share their insights about being a leader. To further help you build your leadership capability, Julian shares his own insights about leadership and the tools and techniques he uses as a leader. I will welcome Toby to the uh, Synergen Leadership Podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to be part of it so that the listeners have a little bit of context about who you are and uh, where you work now. Can you just uh, share a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, I'm Toby Hall. I'm Group CEO of St Vincent's Health Australia. Most people tend to know us from the local facility in their community, but we uh, operate up and down the eastern seaboard. We run public hospitals, private hospitals, aged care and research facilities. Overall, organisationally, we turn over about 2.4 billion and we've got about 24,000 people that work within our uh, organisation. And is there an interesting fact that the public might not be aware of in terms of uh, SVHA? I think the, uh, the most interesting thing to me about St Vincent's is that in a time where women weren't supposed to have a say in things. We were formed by five nuns who came to Australia with no money, no resources, and they set up and were the seed that planted this organisation which has grown to be quite a large influential organisation. And I think the fact around that is, is that it takes bright people to get things done and people with a vision and some guts and determination can do incredible things and we love to pay respect to those five nuns for what they did and if you looked at it logistically most people would say what they did was bordering on impossible and even I as a manager kind of I just am in awe of how they've done what they did and how they delivered it and so that, that's my favourite factory on St Vincent's is our history and how we got established. All right. Well, I would like to take you all the way back to your, your very first uh, leadership role and the start of your leadership journey. Can you share with the listeners uh, a little bit of context about what your first leadership role was? Yeah, I've uh, been in a leadership role since probably the first one in, in the business environment was when I was uh, about 26 years old, actually. So I started my career in finance and then investment banking. And got an opportunity to work in a group of companies that was great from a product point of view, but terrible from a business point of view. And I come from the banking side and was asked to come in and fix it up basically. And went in there and to be honest, was absolutely clueless about leadership. Wasn't that good even at the concept of management, but it was uh, reasonably good at money. Yeah. Uh, and so pretty much just had to learn th- learn as I went and probably if you ask people uh, who I worked with then I'm sure it was an awful leader at that point of time in my career. I'm not sure it was good for 26 year olds to be leading things but the organisation actually did very successfully and grew quite well uh, in the time I I was there and I think I I learned but I think leadership's a learning journey and you, you you never stop learning, and I do occasionally look back in horror at some of the leadership things I did when I was younger. <laughs> and were there any sort of mistakes that you made which really stand out for you in that role? I, I, I think the mistakes, particularly at that age, were probably being too full and confident for myself and not giving enough respect to people around me and the skills and abilities they had and at times making decisions too quickly without actually re- 
relying on people who have far more experience than me and respecting their thinking. And I actually learned that lesson fairly quickly and probably I'd say in the first year I wasn't very good at that, but I, I learned, particularly as we took over a couple of other companies, that in almost every failing company there are people who know exactly why it's failing, what is wrong with it, and often how to fix it. And there are also people who are often ignored by the management. And they're ignored for a couple of reasons because they're in an unimportant role in the manager's views or the leader's views, or, or they're annoying. And the unimportant people tend to be the, just the ignored people and no one bothers to talk to and assumes they've got nothing to add. And the annoying people tend to be annoying because they've been telling people what to do and everyone's just ignored them. Mm. And I, I learned that I wasn't doing that. When I learned to do that, I think it was probably one of the most transformational leadership uh, things in my career. And I particularly remember an, an older guy called Ian who was uh, in a printing business. This business had been very, very successful and literally hit the ropes in a 24-month period and just was disastrous. Um, we got called in to um, help fix it up. We took over the company, gone into administration. So I learned enough to go and talk to people. And he was a frontline worker running the factory. So I just went down and had a chat with Ian and said, tell me about your history, what you've done and what you do. And he'd been with the company 24 years. So he'd been there from a very small business to quite a big one and seen lots of things change. And I said, well, what? Tell me what went wrong. And he said, oh, it's easy. We spent a whole lot of money on a marketing department. I was like, okay, well, why did that cause a problem? He said, because we don't need a marketing department because we only sell to two people and the two people we sell to are not interested in the marketing department. They're interested in our designers. So we'd set up this whole kind of infrastructure because that's what some consultants had told us to do, but they didn't understand how our customers worked. And what happened is that those customers got upset because they weren't dealing with the people they wanted to deal with. They were dealing with the marketing department. So we went back and I looked at it, and he was quite right. It was a massive marketing department, uh, pretty much entirely causing the loss of the business. So um, we moved the marketing department on very quickly and went back to the model we used to have before and got them back into profit and then said, okay, well, we've dealt with that, but then we need to look at how do we do market development. And the right way to do market development in their case was actually to let their experts in design work with customers, which actually is a little bit counterintuitive, but in that business was exactly the right thing to do. And if you didn't speak to the people in the business and understand it, you'd never learn that. And I can just see the consultants who went in there telling them, oh, you've got to do this, this, this. And actually it's entirely the wrong thing because they hadn't fully understood the business and it's easy for us to get that wrong and I've done that plenty of times as well so I try now and speak to people around the business to understand what's going on what's happening at the front line. And was it in that role that you decided leadership was for you that you wanted to pursue a, a career in leadership? I guess and I, I, I this is brutally honest I don't, um, I, I don't even like saying this myself but at that age I basically put on the thought that other people weren't that good and so therefore I might as well leave because other people weren't good enough and I know that sounds terrible and so it's a wrong attitude and I've learned that's a wrong attitude but you know I was young had that sort of thinking and so I was like well if I can't get other people to do it I might as well do it myself and perhaps part of me doesn't like other people telling me what to do possibly as well uh, and so there's been a kind of natural bent and so I've, I've had to learn from that. So I don't know I consciously said I, I want to be a leader. I just kind of got in and started doing things. And actually most of the stuff I've got involved in leading, I usually put my hand up and said, look, I'll give that a go or I'm prepared to do the next step. I think, I think there's a thing which is important in terms of decision-making. I've, I've been prepared to take risks and quite significant risks to do leadership roles that I want to do or to push boundaries that I want to push. And I think that's part of leadership is you've got to be brave enough to make decisions, you've got to be brave enough to take tough calls and those affect you personally sometimes. Like, you know, I've, we've probably in my career, it's a couple of times I've made decisions that could have bankrupted the family and that's not a fun thought. But, you know, sometimes to move forward, you've got to make big, tough decisions. And I think that's really where my kind of leadership thinking 
has come from. But yeah, I didn't sort of wake up one day going, I want to be the leader of a big organisation. It just kind of evolved, I think. And how long were you in that role? So I was in that role for around four years. And we, we actually did quite successfully. We grew the business. I think we did some stuff really well, some stuff we didn't do well. And I, I think one of the key things we did is we grew revenue really, really well. But we didn't do cash flow really, really well, and we kind of learned three years in that we needed to get cash flow worked out. And we uh, we got cash flow worked out, but I uh, I learned in that period of time, and I still believe this that cash is king when it comes to any business. And I kind of see a lot of businesses that don't focus on cash, and a lot of people don't understand that. And I'll I'll speak to small business people out here. To start with small business people all know how to manage cash because every dollar out the door matters and until you're in a position where it hurts and you've experienced that you don't realize the value of money and it's very easy in big organizations to lose that and somehow in bigger organizations you've actually got to get into people's minds and say there has to be a transition in thinking to understand the value of money to understand that cash is what really matters and it Money, in a lot of cases in businesses, is not real to people because it's not theirs, it's someone else's. This organisation, if every person saves a dollar a day, there's $3.5 million a year. Now, that's a lot. But actually, if I said to most people, can you save a dollar a day, like nearly all of them could turn around and say, yeah, it's not that hard to save a dollar a day. And getting that psych into people is important. So I learned definitely that cash is king in that environment. It's actually been uh, something which has served me well because... If uh, there's other stuff that comes to me and the cash flow doesn't look right, I'm just not interested. So you've had your first taste of leadership. You move on, and uh, where did you move on to after that role? So I moved. We sold that business. I didn't know what to do, and so I actually went on an extended holiday to New Zealand, which was my mother's idea. She said I should go and uh, find myself, which I probably did. And so we went to New Zealand and went to quite a small rural community where we had family uh, nearby and I started an MBA and I started working with the local authority there and I think I was 30 years old when I started there and I've got to say my, my perception was they wanted me to do a three-month program with their IT systems to implement a new IT system so I was like yeah I can do that and I actually went in thinking these people are not going to be that smart uh, I guess same thing you're kind of young people in government people don't regard as being smart often and so I didn't go in with a great attitude but what I went in and found actually was some incredibly smart people some without qualifications but incredibly smart people who who are actually often quite undervalued by the people around them who cared passionately about their community and they absolutely loved the community and wanted to do the right thing worked really hard didn't have that perception in the community, which was interesting, and a real vibrancy. We had a great leader at the organisation who was a really driven guy, really passionate, and actually inspired people to work about how to improve the community that we're in, really build it. As part of that process, we did a lot of work around community development and community planning. And the, like my, if, if I've got a technical skill set, understanding how community development works uh, and particularly in disadvantaged groups has probably been a key thing that's built up from my knowledge base. So I get the business side of things but the community development and understanding how that works for people is something that I learned there. And we did some firsts in New Zealand that we found actually were firsts in the world in terms of working with communities to understand their aspirations and their goals, how to actually form government around people rather than government telling people what to do, which was uh, really an interesting learning period. And from that, I, I guess I got a passion to, and really started to believe that I knew about changing organisations. I didn't know about changing communities and changing people. Part of that organisation, I actually got to see and work with people who had some quite tough things go down in life and see them go through a process of transformation. And I, I realised that you could actually transform people and you could help people on a journey of transformation. And once you kind of seen that happen, 
it's pretty hard to not want to do that because it's far more interesting than making money. And so most of my career from that point onwards has really been involved in community transformation or working in environments of transformation for disadvantaged people. And were there any significant successes which stood out for you in that role? Yeah, I think the, uh, the, the really the big stuff was the local community planning and actually saying to people it can have a genuine say on what the future of our community is going to be. And that is an incredibly powerful thing and it's, it comes back a little bit to what I was saying in that business environment. It's actually going out and seeking the knowledge which already resides in the communities that people live in. It's going out at an individual level to understand the strengths and goodness within people. Sometimes they can't see themselves. And my, my experience with people is, and I've, I'm kind of, it's interesting in my role, I've, I've met the richest people in Australia, and literally um, one day was with the Prime Minister and the richest man in Australia, and I'm not sure if he's still there, but I met some of the richest people, and on the same day in, in my roles, engaged with some of the poorest people in the country as well. And, and what I found is that across the board, doesn't matter whether it's someone from a rich background or a poor background, everyone's got strengths within them. And helping people understand those strengths and seeing how they can use them is quite powerful. And just recognising for people that they've got strengths. And contrary to a lot of opinion, there's very few innately bad people in our society. Most people don't think badly. And even when you go into the justice system, about 95% of the people in the justice system have done stupid things. And most of them did it under the influence of drugs or alcohol. And a lot of them are very smart people who have got good sides to them, they've got good natures to them. And yes, they've done stupid things that aren't right, but trying to find the innate strength in people and in communities became really part of my drive. And I think in leadership, that's what leadership is all about. It's helping people become the best they can be deliver the best they can and be the best they can. And even sometimes in the face of them not believing that they can change. And so that's pretty much been my career for the last 20 years. And that in some ways is not a job, something which is, is good fun, you get to really enjoy it. And you see transformational change in a lot of people, we don't see it in everyone, but when you see people thrive in that environment, that's to me what leadership is about, that's what's enjoyable about it. All right, so why did you decide to leave that role? Uh, I, I think probably one was to get a more senior leadership role. So I went from that to a CEO role in local government in New Zealand. At the time, I was the youngest appointed CEO in, in New Zealand in that field. And it was to take on leadership and probably more to be able to see all well, this stuff in my head I can actually translate into reality as a leader. And also to um, expand my skill base and continue to learn. I think that's what leaders do. You spend your whole life learning. And I, I've been in leadership roles for nearly 26 years now, and I've still got more to learn than I know. And that's part of the fun and challenge of leadership. So the role I went on to then was a CEO role in another local government. And there... I went there one with a different attitude because I knew there'd be smart, good people. But interesting, went into a, into a community where there, were, there was real antagonism between the community and the council, which is actually more fun. It makes it more entertaining from a job point of view. It's more of a challenge there, which I like. And we turned around and I said to people, let's work out how together we can transition by thinking to actually get the community to love what we do and love who we are rather than to be irate and angry about it. And we actually went in that organisation from what was a middle-ranked organisation to nearly the top ranking for community feedback in a period of two years. And the way we did that was a transition to actually put the people in the community first in terms of what we're doing. And a lot of that was done by getting our people to go and talk to the people they're engaging with and say, what frustrates you? And then it's as simple in that space as there's a hole in the road. Now, none of us like holes in the road. They're annoying, they damage our cars, they really tick us off. 
And then when you find someone to tell them about it who's supposed to fix it in your head and nothing happens, you don't tend to have generous thoughts towards those people. And the reality is, is that at the other end of the phone, the poor sucker who's getting the phone call who's got no money, resource or time to get the job done, but wants to get it fixed as well. So you've got an unhappy person in the staff and an unhappy customer. So everyone's unhappy and not surprisingly, the relationships are not that cordial. So we went through a process of saying, well, what is the customer that you want to know? And in nearly every case, when we went and talked to customers and said, well, what would you want to have happen? They actually didn't expect the pothole to be fixed that day. But they wanted to know that someone else knew about it, had actually registered it and was going to do something about it. And this didn't take rocket science from a leadership point of view. And I don't think much leadership is rocket science. In fact, leadership is simplicity. Management can be rocket science, but leadership is simplicity. We just put in place a process when someone phoned, we said, we've got your information, we'll call you back tomorrow and tell you what's going to happen. And so we started to do that. And so very quickly people were like, okay, I know what's going to happen. And then if the thing wasn't fixed in two months, we'd call them again just to say, we haven't forgotten, we've got this, we're on to it, it's going to happen at this point in time. And those people were like, oh my goodness, this is a shock to the system, it's totally different. For Australians, you'll get this if you've ever done any building planning. So we uh, we looked at the building planning process where most people were waiting weeks on end to get building approval and sometimes months on end to get building approval in a process which, to be honest, should have been quite simple. So we sat down with the building team and said, let's work out how we can transition this and what would be ideal to you and what would be ideal to our customers. And the customers just wanted to get on with the job. They want to do their building. In a lot of cases, the building is quite simple. And the reality, actually, in, in most of the cases, what people wanted to do was very simple, didn't need a lot of consideration, but went through the same process as the most complex building uh, models. So we looked at that and said, well, how do we respond simply to what's simply and complex to what's complex and just change the system? And the building team themselves came up with, actually, we, we think we can turn this time around to around 48 hours so they talked about that and said we can transition this and to the point where they said we want to put commitment on ourselves and to do the right thing by the customer we need to say to them if we don't turn it around in the 48 hours that we should be able to do we won't charge you and that was quite radical in that field because no one would do that and in fact no one was doing a 48 hour turnaround it took them three months to get to a 48 hour turnaround on 95 percent of the activity and that was a total transition. And from a leadership point of view, it's just saying to people that this is about other people's expectations and aspirations. When you understand those and you can respond to them, then you create change and create a win-win for everyone. And so we moved quite quickly from the point of view that the community got a lot happier and then the staff got a lot happier. Once the staff were happier, they were more motivated. And also once they got all the backlog of rubbish fixed up, they were able to spend more time focusing on what they wanted to do. So that, that leadership transition in that period, and I was with that organisation for about four years, it was really a process of understanding that the, one, the capacity of people to change internally, but also understanding customers and really the purpose we were there was to serve the community. And transitioning the place from this is about me to about service and probably that process of service and attitude around service has gone with me now for the rest of my career to say how do we create service for the people we're here to be for what is our purpose and let that drive us and that'll create transformation so we'll fast forward a little bit to your current role so you mentioned before that you're responsible for ultimately responsible for 24,000 people how does that feel as a as a leader when you, you think of the numbers? I, I actually don't spend a lot of time thinking about the numbers. Uh, and look, when you've got a lot of people, the only thing you can do really as a leader to give guidance is have very clear purpose for the organisation. And so we, we set out a strategy and a purpose, which is really easy, I can tell you now, to serving something greater, seeing something greater and striving for something greater. And 
you can use those words a few times and get into 24,000 people's heads. What are we here to do? And the first thing we're here to do is serve people. We're here to serve the community, in our case, particularly disadvantaged people, but we're here to serve the whole community who need healthcare support. We, we actually should be able to see greater things in terms of our facilities, where we can serve, where we can do more, and actually build and grow the business. And that's pretty easy. So we've got a strategy to grow the business. And then striving for something greater is actually our thinking and our edge is always that we want to be the cutting edge in health services. We want to be the cutting edge in disadvantaged services to the poor in terms of health. And we actually want to have all of our people thinking about how can I be better today than I was yesterday. And even when we're brilliant, we then stop and say, how can we better be better tomorrow? Now, giving people that clear vision and a purpose says why we're here and people need to know why they're somewhere they, if you want a really successful good organization i think you've got to give them an understanding of the purpose and set it up so we've done that and set a clear purpose for the place the second thing is then once you've done that you need to get the structure right and so my view is get purpose and strategy in place then get a structure to run that that's a little bit more complex but you know, I usually do that after spending some time looking at the vision and purpose and here it probably took a year to do that thoroughly to identify what we were doing, where we are heading, getting the communication right. And then we put in place a structure of leaders to operate and run the place. Now, I can't, cannot connect to 24,000 people. In fact, in our organisation, I can't even email our people. So it's very complex. We don't have great systems. It's impossible to communicate with everyone. So the only way you can hope to lead in a larger organisation is get the right people around you with the right leadership skills to get the right people around them with the right leadership skills to do the same, the same, the same. So my job really is to lead a group of 10 people and to guide them, help them be as strong and good as they can be as leaders to lead their people. And so really, whilst there's a huge group of people underneath, and there are there are points where you kind of have to sort of be an ambassadorial leader, the reality is you spend most of your time leading a very small team of people and getting them to do the same thing well. That's how leadership works. So I don't actually think about the numbers really in terms of number of people or amount of money. I think more about the 10 people I've got to look after and look after well. Within that also, my focus is on... I. I should only do what I'm good at doing and give up things that I'm not good at doing. Now, I found through my career that some leaders are not very good at that. And what happens when I try and do the things that I'm not good at is it gets done badly, usually, and sometimes very badly. And it actually disempowers the person who is good at doing that job. Whereas if I transition power to the person who's good at doing that thing, they look great and consequently we look great organisationally and they're doing what they're good at, I'm doing what I'm good at. That creates fulfilment for me, it creates fulfilment for them, but it actually honours the gifts and talents they've got. And I talked earlier about the strengths that people have got. I spend a lot of time in leadership trying to identify and understand the strengths of my people and focus on them and and try and get them to shine in their strengths. And I quite often find that when you get people shining in their strengths, kind of their weaknesses start to dissipate more because they've got more confidence in the areas that they're strong in. That also takes acknowledging that a lot of people haven't got strengths in every area. In fact, the more you go forward in management and leadership, the more you realise all of us have got weaknesses as things we're not good at. And the hardest thing is, I think, to accept the things you're not good at and not worry about it too much. So I put a lot of time in that for me and for people around me, and that's how I try and lead this place. Clear vision, get the structure and strategy right, and then empower people and help them to do what they're good at, and you know, keep your nose out of stuff you're not good at. And and you know that means playing down your ego, to, to, which kind of always says, oh, you've got to be the best at everything. I'm not the best at everything. I try and employ people mostly. In fact, I'll say with my current team now, all of them are better than me at what they do by far. But my job isn't to do what they do. My job is to help them together shine and to do well at what they do. And is there anything which is standing out for you in terms of what you're learning about yourself as a leader in this role? 
I think the, uh, the, the big learnings I've had here is actually I've seen far more clearly now the gap between management and leadership. And when I joined St Vincent's, the, the thing that really shocked me more than anything else was brilliant operational management. People who knew how to run hospital facilities. And to be honest, I still kind of, it does my head in looking at hospital facilities. I and mean, these places are so complex. There's stuff moving 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's logistics of people coming in, machines coming in, equipment coming in, stock coming in, building up. You stop and think about it, there's a lot that goes on in hospitals, it's it's just crazy and it's the same in most big businesses. When you look at the machine that goes on in most big businesses, it's phenomenal and it's almost frightening to look at and dissect it little bit by little bit. But we had people who are great at doing that work, really brilliant. But when I stepped back from that management side of things, it was also clear that most of those people hadn't been given good development around leading and understanding what leadership was about. And there was a difference between managing things technically well and getting the job done and leading. And so we, we as a group hadn't had significant growth for a long period of time. We probably lost some of the vision around our purpose in terms of why we were here. And people were maybe a little bit lost from a direction point of view. And it's, and it's not that they weren't good people, they're really good, smart people. One of the things that I hope I brought to people was understanding how to start to lead. And there's two, two kind of models of leadership. I've yet to be in a leadership position where you don't have to influence up as well as down. And quite often everyone's kind of thinks, well, the CEO, they don't have to do anything influencing outside. But I have to do a lot of work with stakeholders, with my board, with stakeholders for the organisation. And there was a gap in my team in the concept of influence going up. So they knew kind of how to get people to do things going down, not necessarily with clear vision and direction, but they knew how to manage things. But influencing from a leadership point of view to get clear direction and buy-in together with our board wasn't as strong as it should have been. And so with that, we've been trying to help people understand that. And those gaps in bigger organisations are important because if you can't influence up, it doesn't matter how great a CEO you are, you, you won't get movement in the organisation because you've got to have buy-in from your board as well. And so there's a massive influence role and there's no control over that group of people. It's only by influence you can get things done. And so the need for powerful influence going up was key. But then the need for powerful influence going down from a leadership point of view is key as well to say to people, let's remember why we're here. Let's remember the heart of what we're here to do. And yes, St Vincent's is here to run hospitals. And yes, we're here to run the best technical healthcare in Australia and hopefully in some cases in the world. But lots of people can do that. What we've got to do is actually define ourselves by how we care for the people in our facilities how we care for our patients, from the richest to the poorest, that when they come into our facilities, they feel a tangible difference because of the culture and the way they're cared for. And that, other people can't replicate. And that's the journey we've been working on. And in the hearts of our people, that's what they want to do. And all we're doing is saying, let's bring that hope and heart for a great purpose to serve out of our people, and let's give them permission to do it. And some of the time that means them turning around to us as leaders and telling us when we're stupid and when we're wrong because the other thing probably I've learned uh, as a leader is a lot of the time you aren't right and you need really good people around you to turn around and say, actually, that idea is like just not a good one. And I've got some people who do that really well. I've got one of, one of the youngest people on my team, he's about 38, is quite happy to turn around and tell me when I'm being stupid. And actually, you know, any leader who's got a problem with that is not going to be a great leader because you need sometimes people give you a check and say, no, that's a really bad idea, or no, we haven't thought through this well enough, or there's different ways of doing that. And so I think having people around you who are prepared to give you the truth is uh, quite important. And I, I, I encourage that. I like that. I like people giving the truth across. It doesn't matter actually whether they're on my team or whether they're a junior staff person. If it helps improve the purpose, you've got to be open to that. And so that's another learning as well. Okay.
So I wouldn't mind exploring a, a few of your more general views on leadership now. Uh, is there a big leadership myth that you've that you've heard about and you've decided that's not right? Yep. First one is uh, the concept of no I in team. That is the biggest fallacy that has ever been created by leadership. And if you've ever heard that there's uh, no I in team, forget about it, is my view. In fact, teams are absolutely about I's and individuals make up a team. And the greatness of teams is actually understanding the strengths of, of different individuals, who they are as a person, how they operate, how they think, and bringing that together, kind of a bit like an orchestra in a, sympath- in, a, in a symphony. And this concept of we put our individual kind of thing aside and become this great team, uh, and we forget about who we are, I don't think exists, and I don't think it's good. I think with that is a fallacy that you actually have to like everyone on your team. And there's a lot of cuddly, lovey stuff that goes on in leadership development where it's kind of all kind of let's have a kumbaya and hug and play guitar. You know, and we're, we're a good organisation. We're from a Catholic basis. We hope we, uh, we operate with care and compassion for one another, which is a good thing. But in teams, you don't have to like everyone around the team, but you do have to be able to work together and you do have to be able to respect each other. And I think often we've got this model where we try and create a perfect team which is almost impossible and I'll give you an example of this I had a leader when I was at Mission Australia who was a really really nice person and you know, they did everything the kind of current trendy leadership books would tell you on kind of caring for people including people loving people creating the right team and yet they couldn't deliver on a business time and time again and I tried and tried different ways to kind of work out how do we get this person to deliver because all I could see was they're doing all the right stuff that the leadership books say you should do but what they weren't doing was actually making sure they had the people on the team around them they didn't want on the team which is the person saying no to this the person saying we've got to do this this and this even though it's tough and so they were doing all the nice stuff around making it feel like a nice environment and it's great to have a nice environment if you can have it. But if you create a nice environment and can't run the business and can't lead what you're doing, then ultimately you'll fail. And so we've got to accept that some of the time to create what we want to do, there's got to be tensions. And I think most good leadership teams need to have people with very contrary views. And often you don't necessarily like the people with contrary views. But if you're frankly dumb enough to not let those views come in, actually it will disempower your overall leadership. And so I think that's, uh, that's an area where I think we need to do some rethinking and resetting on how we want to operate. And I think great teams actually have diversity in terms of age, gender, thinking, and that should create tension at times. The team should have tension. They should have aggression might be the wrong word, but there should be times of real creative aggression where people are challenging the thinking and that doesn't come by lovey dovey stuff it comes by sometimes as a team you have to be tough and I think we need to do some more thinking there. And how would you describe yourself as a leader? Are there any words which stand out for you in terms of? Uh, I'm quite driven <laughs> and Look, I'm very, I'm very purpose-driven. I, I actually say, look, there's, I don't think there's many things I'm very good at, but the things I think I am good at are setting a clear vision for an organisation, getting a structure in place, and working with people to deliver on the vision and the structure successfully, and driving the organisation of people to be the best they can be. The downside of that is an... I'm sure anyone who's worked with me would say this. Sometimes I push people beyond their age, and I've got to be careful not to do that. But I absolutely don't apologise for pushing people to their age because that's what I'm here for, is to help people be the best they can be in their field. So, yes, I'm driven. I'm interested in purpose and actually engaging to create change in society and create... Uh, particularly for disadvantaged people, an opportunity for them to achieve. And so there's a drive there. Look, I put it into the language of helping people be the best they can be 
wherever they're at, but also with a special emphasis on the poor and vulnerable to, because I, I realise that most people who are in that situation are actually not there by their own making. Most of them are there by an accident of birth and how we can help create change there drives me and interests me and I'm passionate about that. And I think most people would say I'm quite focused on achieving outcomes once we set goals and targets. To me, it's actually us making a commitment to our board and to our organisation. This is where we're heading and it's important to deliver on those commitments. And tangibly, leadership teams need to own those things. And quite often, it's easy for people to kind of pass the buck, make excuses for why it can't be delivered. My view is we should do everything we can to achieve the outcomes we committed to achieve. I think that's part of what we can do. And I'd rather set hard aspirational outcomes and get 90% of the way than set weak, boring outcomes and, and get to them. And so I, I like aspirational outcomes. I think it's important to think larger and to help grow. And on that large growth thing, one of the things I found, I found this particularly learn this at Mission Australia, when you set small vision, people will think in a small way. If you set impossible vision, people will generally at first think that's impossible, but then they'll start to think in a bigger way and say, I actually have to think differently to deliver the impossible. So when Mission went into housing, we had 17 houses and we set out a goal to start thinking about a journey over a long period of time to having 2,000 houses, which is you know, quite a lot, and then eventually to 10,000 houses. Now, from 17, if I said go from 17 to 34, you know, people would do it without any problem, it'd be easy. Going from 17 to 2,000 is your first phase, sounds crazy, but they achieved that in about three years. And they achieved it because they were given something which was way too big for them to think in the small way. They transitioned their thinking and realised actually they could deliver this big thing because they had to think in a different way. Now you can't always do that, but the reality is if you didn't set the challenge, people would never think in the way, well, how can I actually achieve that thing? And so setting big goals, and we do that in some instances as well, setting some big goals that people drive towards gets their thinking to be different and at a different level. And sometimes when you do that, what people thought was impossible, they suddenly work out actually as a way of doing this. And when I talk to leaders, I'm always curious if there's any models, methodologies, frameworks that they subscribe to. Is there anything over your journey that you thought that's a great tool, I'm going to use that, I'm going to try to bring that in? Look, I'm not a big, I, I actually am uh, a little bit cynical about a lot of the models and tools because I think they're too complex mostly and I think we're all pretty simple people. I like uh, the case management theory, which is copy and steal everything. Uh, <laughs> that's one of my favourites. I, I genuinely believe that often people create complexity in putting together a lot of the business models that is too much for your average person to work on. My job, I think, as a leader is actually to get rid of complexity and try and create simplicity for people and make it really, really easy, which is why we can say our mission in six words. Taking, taking that is the most important model that I focus on. And like, there's lots of jazzy things I've seen come and go, like activity-based costing, which everyone thought was great, but never worked because it was too expensive, too complex. And to be honest, I'm not stupid. I struggle to understand it. And when you saw people try and implement it, pretty much everyone did it, it failed. And quite often these models are created in university environments, in kind of false spaces, they're implemented and they don't work that well. All that said, I'm all for learning from real things that have worked. And so when you look at the lead model, which was created by Toyota, which is an internal structure, we've taken that and put that into our hospitals in different locations. And it's actually a really simple model, it's not that complex. And I think there's a lot of value in learning from real examples of what other people have done and trying to implement that. But yeah, there's no great management model that I kind of follow. If there's a theory to my leadership, I think the more I go on, I think how people are treated defines more organization than anything else really. Okay. And what would you say your biggest leadership challenge is right now? 
our biggest issue is having the capacity to grow as much as we want to grow and creating people, uh, I think in people in the organisation, the belief that we can grow as much as we want to go, but also finding people in the organisation who are prepared to take on a challenge to grow. There's so much opportunity in health at the moment that it's ridiculous. I and mean, we, we could literally build for a decade ahead of us in, in health and be able to serve the community for a long period of time from those buildings. But having the capacity to do that in a managed way is a real challenge at the moment. And finding the people who are good enough to step up and lead is a challenge. That said, I think I've got the people in the organisation, it's actually just going out and finding them. And as a leader, it's like turning around and saying to people, some of the time actually you can chuck a, a crazy 26-year-old in, give them something and somehow they make it happen. And we're not always good at doing that. Some people, when you do that, they fall and fail. My way of working is actually to test people out and give them a project and see how they go. Generally, people, they can deliver on certain projects at a certain size, they can scale up to another thing if they're smart and they're bright. So that's a big challenge, and you know we're working on that and trying to respond to it. But that's the biggest issue: is like how to manage growth, manage it well, how to stagger then the development so you don't kill everyone. I uh, I look at this from the point of view of all the organisations I've worked at. I've I've seen I've probably and I've done it myself. There's times where you push too hard. I liken it to sailing. When you look at the guys who sail, you actually want to be the person who's keeping the boat going at 95% the whole time. Because when you're going up to 100% and you're running at 100% the whole time, either people or systems or the equipment fails. Whereas if you can keep people close to running at that all the time, there's space for thinking, for rest, for management. And so I try and run at that 95% pace. So when you're looking at growth, we've got to be really conscious not to overdo it because that can be a disaster. And you know, the difference between failure and success is not actually that big a gap. It's really easy to stuff up. So putting a lot of focus in on how we can do growth will be my big challenge. And, that, and frankly, it'll be the big challenge for the next few years. Okay. And uh, I'm always interested in what people, leaders in particular, think about networking. It's something which a lot of the leaders I talk to don't necessarily focus on, so I'm always curious to explore that. Um, I actually don't a lot of time into networking widely, but I put a lot of time into networking with the right people. And I try to in my career to network with people who are smarter than me, and brighter than me and take up time of people who I probably shouldn't have access to. And that takes a lot of respect. Uh, but I've found there's very few people who, if you ask them for advice, won't give you time. If you go and try and sell people something, it's impossible to get in the door if you ask, can I come get some advice? You'd be amazed at how many of the senior business people in Australia will open their doors and I, I don't need to go through the companies. but. Uh, three or four people and one, one of the, literally one of the biggest CEOs in the country in terms of his stature, his knowledge, I phoned up and said, can I get some advice? And he guided me on structure and how to manage and structure incredibly well and said, look, when you need more time, just come back. And five or six times I needed that, he said, just come sit down. And often it's finding people who can give you insights breakthrough in the areas you need to learn because they've been there before and so I look out for people really smart who I can work with one of the people who's mentoring me now I was next to a business dinner they're on the board of a very big Australian company and I was just like this person is so smart I can learn from them and where people are smart and I can learn from them I spend time networking there's a difference between networking mode to grow and develop your knowledge and skills and from basically what are kind of gossips and interest networks. I spend no time on the gossip and interest networks at all, to be honest, I'm just not interested. I've got enough friends and not enough time as it is. But I do spend a lot of time on where I can learn. And I think that's what you have to do more and more as leaders. And I think that means you have to be targeted about where can you learn, who do you want to learn from, 
and spend time networking with those people. And I've, I'd say in a couple of cases, in 20 minutes with the right person, I've learned more than I might from two years worth of networking around the kind of the kind of gossipy type of networks. And it's those type of people I'll try and get time with to learn from. And, and you mentioned you said about uh, having a mentor, and is that something you deliberately set out to do to find a mentor? And yeah, and I, I would highly encourage anyone who wants to go into leadership to uh, get a mentor around them. And mentors are not a sign of weakness; it's actually, I think, a sign of strength. And it's just saying there are people you can learn from. So I actually work with three mentors at home. Uh, one mentor is really business mentor, got a lot of board experience, and is really helping in thinking around how the people I need to influence are going to think about the things I'm bringing to them. And it's pretty blunt about turning around saying that way of doing it is really stupid, it's not going to work, no one's going to let you do that. And it's really quick, smart advice on how to work on influencing. It just helps me kind of be better at what I do in terms of the people I need to work with. And it stops me wasting time for my board, which is an important thing. I work with a technical mentor uh, on I'm really two spaces, one on the health industry. I'm not from the health industry, so I don't know everything about it. And there's points where I need to get external advice, which is technical. They also work on um, some of the technical side of IT and the health industry, which they know about as well. And that that is to work with someone who's got specific knowledge in the field that I'm in, but mainly to learn and understand and question and to get feedback on thinking. That's probably more down into the organisation. So one is for influencing up, the other is to say, you know, this is what needs to get done in health. And the third is really kind of personal coaching. Where are the areas where I'm weak in terms of interacting with my team, leading my team, dealing with people? Where do I need to focus on improving the strengths that I've got? And where are the blind spots I've got? And so in that, we do 360 degrees with my team, look at areas that are working, areas that are not working. Some of those are kind of just how I am and I can't change it, but some of them are actually having someone sit down and remind you, hey, you need to remember to make time to do this. How are you going with doing those things? And so I work with those three levels. And frankly, look, I wouldn't be, I, I, there's absolutely no way I'd be in my position if I had have mentors. The way of looking for them, my, my perspective is, is look for someone kind of two levels above where you are. That kind of gets harder the bigger the organisation is. But now when you're a young leader in, a, in an organisation, it doesn't have to be in your organisation, find someone who can sponsor you and guide you it's a couple of levels above where you are and then keep doing that. And the reason I say do it like that, if you go to the brightest business person in the country when you're 32, they're going to get ticked off with you pretty quickly and you're not actually ready to understand what they've got to say. Whereas if you go to someone who's 38, who's just been through your journey, they're that far, they're kind of like 20, 30% ahead of where you are. They can actually teach you a lot. They can guide you through the next phase of your career. So most of the mentors I've worked with, kind of on particularly on the business and thinking side, I probably only work with them for maybe two years at a time. And that's it because you've kind of learned what you're going to learn from them and, and you've grown. And if you haven't and you've done something wrong, you then need to kind of push yourself to the next level. And... For me, like a year ago, I was really conscious that I needed to get back onto that track. And so it took me six months looking around to find someone from my level who could say, okay, yeah, this person is really smart and I can learn learn from them. And it, it is hard because I've got 24,000 people. It's not only that, it's really not that many people have got organisations that big. So finding those people is hard and there's points where you just have to go internationally and look at finding international people. But a couple of levels up, I think, is a really good way to start. And if you don't, I, I'd say if people don't get good mentors around them, they're probably not going to succeed in leadership, would be my view. They might get some of the way, but I don't think they'll go all the way. And do you mentor anyone yourself? Yeah, I do. So I've got uh, quite a few people I mentor. Obviously, I, I hope with my team, I don't know what they'd say, I hope that I uh, mentor them. In terms of my direct team, uh, I usually I spend quite a bit of time doing some mentoring with younger people in business, particularly people I think can go a long way. Uh, most of that is more coaching than mentoring. And is actually helping them understand just some of the stuff we're discussing today and cut through the noise and say, okay, here's some small things that you can do to look at things differently. And I enjoy that. And I actually learn as well, and particularly in a couple of cases, it is a really smart 
young people who are much better on some of the technology things than me and actually able to give me guidance on, hey, this is some stuff that you can do with tech now that, you know, your, your team who's older probably doesn't get into the stuff, but it's intuitive to us. And I like the energy of, uh, of younger people as well, and the kind of excitement. Some of that need, we need, I, I needed the edges knocked off me when I was that age, and some of it you need knocked out, but some of it's really good as well. So I enjoy it, and it's a good thing to do. Okay. And uh, any challenges you think your industry is going to face as we come out, as we move forward? Yeah, our industry's got some huge issues. Uh, we've basically got governments who don't want to give us more money, and health funds who don't want to give us more money for health. And communities basically had virtually no wage increases in real terms for five years. And um, I, I don't know how people will see the CPI calculations, but when it comes to my pay packet at home, CPI seems to be a downside higher than the published CPI rates. And that affects our business, and it's going to affect every business because the economy is not as strong as people think. And people are spending a lot on their housing, and a lot of people actually, even their upper middle classes, finding it tougher to get by and in health that means they're reticent to spend and they're putting off operations so that constrained funding is a challenge and for us we've got to continually challenge our effectiveness and it's literally every single year we have to go through your expenditure view how we operate and say how do we get more efficient and i don't see that changing for a number of years ahead so managing thinking through resources is important. But this goes back to what I said about that kind of bigger thinking. If you turn around and say to people and we talk about the fact we're not going to get big increases in revenue for the next few years and we are going to get big volume increases for the next few years, we've got to do things differently. So let's plan for that now. Think about it now. Let's not have our head in the sands and pull our heads up and think realistically about what's going to happen. And one of our facilities... It doesn't matter particular areas. A lot of the people, particularly the clinicians in that community, have I think had their head in the sand a little bit about the reality of the world they're living in. That funding is far more restricted than they have realised, and it's not going to change. And if the outside world isn't going to change, there's only one group of people that can change successfully, which is us. We've got to be prepared to confront those issues and that's a big big issue for us is managing through that and look I, I did a tour of the country and told people that on the first day I was here I basically said our big challenges were simple our organization getting the mission right this organization the purpose right which we've done getting our head around the fact that we're going to get less and less money to do more and more and more and that's not going to change and therefore we've got to be creative, we've got to think smart, and we've got to realise together this is not some sucker in management doing this to people. It's the world outside that is going to change our organisation unless we change ourselves. And my view is if we're in leadership, we want to set direction, we're much better setting that ourselves than letting other people do it for us. And any last views on leadership you'd like to share with listeners? My main thing is leadership is about people and I think all leaders should treat everyone with respect and particularly I liken our organisations to a clock and there's lots of tiny little cogs and clocks. You pull one of those out and things fall apart. A lot of people would think in the health world that the doctor's the most important. Actually our cleaners are the most important. If they stop cleaning for one day in our facilities, mayhem will break out. And people don't tend to think of things that way around. But as great leaders, I think the challenge for us to say is that all our people are important, all our people matter, they all deserve the same level of respect. It doesn't matter whether they're a clinician or a cleaner, treat everyone with respect. And I try and engage with everyone on the same level to say it doesn't matter what your pay grade is, but you as a person and what you bring to this organisation has got equal importance and equal value as everyone else is in the same place. You're one cog in a big machine and if you come out of it, our machine will fail and so we've all got to work together and support each other and so that level of respect for people I think is a big thing that great leaders uh, bring to bear and that's what creates great culture and hopefully we can do that at some instance. Okay.
And if the listeners want to connect with you or learn more about SVHA, where should they go? Uh, they can get onto LinkedIn. It's pretty simple. It's Toby Hall, uh, SVHA. So it's not hard to find. I've got plenty of uh, people in there. And you know, if you really want to connect, uh, get on the phone to my EA and I'm sure we can uh, connect with some listeners who want to have a chat. Well, Toby, thank you so much for uh, spending the time to, to share your thoughts on leadership. I uh, really appreciate it. No problems, I enjoyed it. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Synergy Leadership Podcast. I trust you found it interesting. A couple of things. If you could go online and leave a review of the podcast, that would be great. Really help us in uh, spreading awareness of the podcast. Happy for you to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. And if you want to shoot me through an email, julian at synergygroup.com.au. Uh, see you next time.